The scientific revolution starts now. But, but let's be clear, the main substance of abuse are, or I hate that, that's weird how it incurs the word abuse. Indulge. The main substance I indulge in are coffee. <laughs> that's like the biggest one, first of all. Yeah. That's the most consistent one. Like, I think I would not like to go a day of my life without coffee. A day of life without any other substance, I'm like, nah. With coffee, I just, I, I miss it. It's a really sticky problem because I've been trying to cut back on coffee because I realize I feel myself just spin up into outer space. Even when I drink a cup of coffee, like if I brew it too strong, I can imagine immediately feel that just zzzz. And it's not particularly pleasant when I overdo it. And But I love the taste of coffee. And so I'm always looking for something that can replace it. And there's literally nothing. Yeah. There's yeah. nothing that, that gives... It just brings me so much joy. I don't know what it is. The downside seems so low compared to just the sheer pleasure of it. I'm sure that's what other people on hard drugs say too, but I don't know. And there are functional heroin addicts for sure. I've heard, I've, I've not met one myself, but I've heard of them. <laughs> I think that's anecdata. And it's hard to take coffee to the like shooting up in the alley levels. Like no, Like it doesn't have that escalation pattern to it. I guess you could be pounding caffeine pills. You could be really destroying your sleep schedule. There's, there's, I can, I can imagine people. It has an abuse potential, but it yeah. doesn't seem as like steep. Yeah, you don't really. I guess you. The only way that I see people doing it is that gradually they work their way towards sugary coffee drinks, and then mm. you're abusing two substances at once. I don't fuck with sugar. <laughs> yeah, all other substances are fair game in moderation, but sugar, no way, absolutely not. But hey, to each their own. I'm just worried about the inflammation with sugar. I always feel like garbage, right? I always feel just super puffy and stuffy and hot and like, ugh. That's the one thing. I don't know. Maybe I have insulin insensitivity at this point. Or wait, insulin sensitivity. I just think that it's in such pure form and it's so present in our food supply that it's in everything. And we're not eating, we're not eating things that are meant to be eaten necessarily that's always i always feel so silly when i start talking about nutritional stuff because me too it just you immediately enter into the sphere of i am a person who is preoccupied with this most bourgeois concern of all which is my macros yeah you know i just it's also so unclear right that the advice and the science is being illuminated every day a little bit more this is why I never, ever want to give people substance or nutrition advice because I'm like, hey, I've been trying this one thing or whatever and it's sort of better than what I was doing before that, but I'm not going to try to say it's the end-all, be-all way to live your life. It's just a very, very difficult personal thing. There's obviously things that we can point to, like sugar, which are problematic, or let's say like cigarettes. They're problematic, right? They seem problematic. Like you wouldn't want to give them to your child probably because you're like, ah, it seems problematic, but there's other things when it comes to ingesting substances, water, food, where it's kind of, eh, there might be multiple ways to go about this. Different folks, different strokes kind of thing. What, what, what do you mean about the water? Like the, the amount of water that you're drinking? I mean, have you looked at the industry behind water purification? And Not really. Right? There's so much debate about what 
water is good for you versus what what filtration process, what ways of treating water are the best way. The same thing with food, right? What's the best way to cook food? Well, some people say, don't cook it at all. That's the best way, you know? And I'm sure some people would argue. No, but to- no one in their right mind says not to cook food at all. Have they, you seen those there's people? like a whole raw, raw there vegan There is, but they always look like little bloated goats. Oh, you just killed off like half our audience. No way, no way. Like every, I think veganism, fine. I think that there's probably the same way that there's uh, creatures that are herbivorous and there are creatures that are omnivorous. There's probably genetic differences in the way that people are wired, where some people want to have... All vegetables, some people are omnivores, some people are carnivores, whatever. Like, But what? you were saying you felt like a goaded bloat when you were on the A goaded bloat. I did feel like goated a goaded <laughs> bloat. <laughs> <laughs> I oh was definitely God. a goaded bloat. I mean, look. I, <laughs> Please put a marker there I, and take that I, off. No, we're leaving that. I feel like I am hypersensitive. Like, my curse is the fact that I feel everything. I try to embody the world in such a way where I have almost no barrier between myself and the things that are happening to me in a way that other people just do not have, you know, I'm, and so nutritionally I'm affected by stuff in a way that no one else that I know is. And so whatever recommendations I have, like I talk to my friends about it and they don't have the same problems that I have. And so it's impossible for me to make some kind of generic statement about how someone should live because I recognize how anomalous my own tendencies are. And don't you think everyone's kind of like, that's the strange thing about being a human. It seems like each of us has very different needs physically, emotionally, in terms of our interests, our curiosities. Some people love thinking about gravity all day. Some people love thinking about whales all day. Even within the landscape of the people that we love talking to. And so at the end of the day, what advice can you really give anybody except for, hey, you should probably pay attention to the minute cues that are happening inside of you to figure out what it is that you like and what you want and what feels good. Because otherwise, there's no one-size-fits-all suggestion for this is the science that you should study, this is who you should become, or this is how you should live. And we operate inside of a world where everybody wants to take on the role of being the one that tells people how to live and what to do. And so anytime that you step in front of a microphone, you're kind of stepping in front of an audience, and that audience is asking shout out to the audience shout out to the audience yeah they're asking for some kind of wisdom and i think that the lowest common denominator wisdom is what you should eat yeah yeah, yeah. i i don't know just i I don't want to be in the habit of making blanket statements about these kinds of things but anyways we should probably tell people what the hell we're doing because this is a weird podcast We've been getting a lot of feedback from you guys that you actually want to hear more about who we are and what we're up to. So we thought we would take a little pause this week and interview each other a little bit about our background and where we want to go in life with this project and with everything in the realm of life and science. And so that's what we're doing. And we don't want to give you nutritional advice. Listen to your bodies. <laughs> yeah, it's just, yeah, the the influencer space for it is vast. We could probably start selling nutritional supplement pills. But every time that I see somebody... It's it, been recommended many times. It has been recommended. Why aren't you guys selling something? We actually are selling t-shirts. I think that they're down in the description somewhere. But 
I really, and we'll be designing much better t-shirts. We will be. <laughs> Version 1.0. So this is actually something that I spend a lot of time thinking about is how to make money off this project in a way that is morally consistent with what I think is right to do. And I am, and, and in line with what we're discovering by doing this project, which is understanding nature and understanding the role of humans in nature. And also trying, I think personally, I'm trying to find a way to get out of this capitalist rat race that we're in where people just buy trinkets that aren't necessarily necessary or good or making the world a better place. And so I'm preoccupied with finding a way to make this project financially viable without resorting to, hey, supplements, because that just feels, I don't know, it just feels corny and bad. And, I mean, we've we've avoided ads at least on the Spotify world, on all the audio releases. Well, YouTube puts their own ads in, but I think we have a lot less than most people. We've clicked, unclicked all of those ads that pop up in the middle of conversations. And it would be, and so far we've actually gotten a lot of support through Patreon. So that's been kind of incredible because not only does it raise money for the project, but we're also meeting people who care deeply, deeply about these subjects and about the future of the world that we're imagining. And what better way to get fueled than by people who want have skin in the game? I mean, what what better way to move forward with the project than being fueled by people who have skin in the game? Intuitively, if if I had my choice, we would never be supported by anything except for the audience. Yeah. I just the idea of slapping ads on stuff for you to get ads for like Ozempic or, or I don't know. <laughs> we got an email yesterday. That was like... Spotify has found a sponsor for your podcast. It happens to be Spotify. Yeah, yeah. They're like, we'll give you $11 a month, I think, to slap a Spotify ad in the middle of this. I was like, if you're going to pay my entire rent, maybe I'll, I'll give you a little ad in the middle. I always think about it. But I don't want to is the thing. I, I actually hope that we can avoid ads in general and continue to be powered by Patreon or some other product that we can offer. What are some useful products, guys? I mean, we have one patron who has a really cool tea shop and makes these medicinal teas. And we were thinking about collaborating to make something like that. We've obviously got the t-shirts. Everybody needs clothes. So rock the Demystify Psy t-shirt. I'll be rocking mine. But it's true. What can we give? It'd be really funny if people you just presented who... like wearing demystify side t-shirts. <laughs> just all like head to toe demystify. I think side well, I think some podcasters do that. They wear their own t-shirts to the interviews and stuff. Yeah, I've seen that. I think so. But what can we give you guys back for your support, which is coming to us almost entirely through Patreon right now? They can't answer you right now. Oh, they can answer me. There is a comment section. <laughs> <laughs> but we cannot fold it into the course of discourse. Anyways, so who the hell are you? Who am I? I'm a person who likes to understand things. I think in the most basic form. I'm the one who wants to know how stuff works. I'm particularly interested in mechanistic stuff, but literally physically mechanistic stuff. Taking something apart, figuring out how the pieces fit together, and how to reassemble them. I really get off on being able to fix things. And so for me, I want to understand things in service of being able to make them right, because I have almost a boundless belief in my capacity to fix problems. And that, ladies and gentlemen, makes this woman the best partner on earth. Because <laughs> if something's broken, somebody around 
There's somebody around who can fix it. Well, I tend to panic a lot. You do panic, but you love fixing problems. I do love fixing problems. Once you get through the panic. <laughs> Have you always been like that? In Panicked? Panicked and, and loving to fix the problems? That's a good question. No. No. I think that I was probably always panicked, but I think that I was mostly panicked in a way that I felt very powerless about the world in general. Mm. So it's almost like science and understanding give you relief. Do they give me relief? I mean, that's what we're doing with this podcast, right? We call people up and try to understand how the universe works. And why in the hell would we do that? Well, I do that. Why do, well, yeah, why do you do that? Because I love talking to people. I think that just from from the genesis of this podcast was kind of interesting because for me, I'd always wanted to do a radio show. I listened to a lot of This American Life, to a lot of Radio Lab, um, basically the entire suite of NPR podcasts when I was in college. And it was just such a viscerally pleasant experience for me. And I loved the experience of listening to them and the new ideas that they would bring me that I always wanted to do something like that. And I love people. I love hearing their stories. I love talking to them. But I think that you had a different motivation for it. Yeah, I guess I'm more coming at this from probing the universe. <laughs> I sound like an alien in a spaceship. Mm -hmm. But I really wanted to understand how the world works not just the world but the physical universe as well and when i was like 10 i went to the library to try to figure this out especially the physical landscape and the wide swath of then recently popular scientific literature in physics was all about kooky space-time quantum bizarreness paradoxes and i was just so bummed out about it for the next 20 years until i finally made my way to the top of the ivory tower and realized there weren't actually any answers to these things out there which is obviously naive and so that's why i started this whole investigative project with you was to talk to people try to figure out answers to these questions and it's obviously led to our material atomics project in particular with that aspect but it turns out to be equally exciting to figure out how the other aspects of nature work as well and so i am here on the phone <laughs> several times a week yeah I, I mean i think i just like talking to people at the end of the day it's just i really enjoy literally listening to people move their mouths yeah. i like looking at their faces i like seeing the stories that they have and understanding obviously understanding is important because it's just how my mind works anyways and i think that it's how your mind works too where you're always focused on figuring out the intricacies of mechanism even before we did this podcast yeah, I think it's it brings a huge relief to understand how something works. I think that's what I was getting at earlier, is just that if you don't understand the world around you, it's terrifying and chaotic. This is a really ancient metaphysical first principle. Like, if you look back to ancient religions, the, the if you can even call them that, they weren't organized in the same sense, but they were traditional practices. They're all aimed at integrating the chaos 
which is nature, when you face it, when you first open your eyes as a human being, and ordering it into something which we call the cosmos, which is a predictable set of behaviors that we can work within. Because once you understand how the universe operates, then you can spare yourself the worst parts of that, ideally. And it does seem to play out that way on the day-to-day. But I think I'm more drawn to this kind of thing because I'm trying to figure out how the place works so that I can get a grip on it so it's not so terrifying. I do like talking to people, though, too, as it turns out. Were you ever preoccupied with the question of purpose? Like, did you ever, do you ever remember asking yourself, like, what is, what is my point? It's kind of weird. I actually never had that, that, I never had that. I was, like, really into music when I was a teenager, and that gave me a sense of identity, because I was like, here's this little place where I can do everything perfectly, and nothing can get in my way. And as long as I'm left alone to that tiny little corner of reality, I'm totally safe. And people seem to, for whatever reason, like honor that role. I had a place in the society of my peers <laughs> when I could make music because I could somehow nucleate events, right? We could have basically throw a party. We're going to play a show, you know, and you, and there was this like camaraderie, there was this camaraderie of being in a band where you're working on this thing together with your buddies and it's nu- nucleating new social interactions, sort of like a podcast, really. Mm. You're forming a place where people can get together, and that's kind of what our Patreon and Discord have turned into. We're like throwing shows, right? We're planning on taking this on the road next year and throwing shows, right? Yeah. So there's that nucleating of community, which I think I really, really find as purposeful. And I guess I kind of always had. So I never had that crisis, although I know most people go through it on their way to science or communication. Or Until you met my family and you tried to play guitar at the table while everyone was cooking dinner. Yeah, that didn't go over too well. We're a functional group of people. Family doesn't really value music, to be fair. To a shocking degree, yeah, isn't it? it is shocking. It is shocking. I remember one time when I was younger. I, I mean, was... just for some background, like when I was a little kid, I would just go, like we'd have a big family dinner, grandparents come over, whatever. It'd be like, Shiloh, go play the piano. Like that was my job for a social event in the family. I would just basically be the music maker. That was my job. And so the first time I went to fancy Russian dinner at Nastia's. <laughs> What fancy? It was just so family fancy. dinner. It's no. like you could eat off the floor at your parents' house. That's true. The first time I went to fancy Russian dinner, I, I brought a guitar, and uh, I attempted to play guitar for everybody, and it did not go over well. What you misunderstood is that you were not going to fancy Russian dinner, you were going to cooking gulag. Mm. And at cooking gulag, <laughs> there's no space for music. There's only space for work. I think that everyone in the family has kind of... You, you've been a really good influence on the family. Where I feel like there's... When you're around, everybody's a little bit more relaxed. And they kind of recognize that perhaps the high vibrational mode that my family tends to spend our time in is not the right mode. Your family is 100% engineers, too, which is fascinating. Because science and engineering are two different sides of the brain, the way I'm looking at it. And I've always seen myself as more of a science person than an engineering person. Like, 
I love technology. I love what it can do for me, but I'm ultimately more interested in the ideas that underpin it. Yeah. And exercising, maybe, like, I want to play music. I don't want to spend all day under the mixing board with a screwdriver and a flashlight, that kind of thing. I'll do it if I have to, but it's not, I'm not drawn to that. But your family is 100% screwdriver under the mixing console. Yeah, and I think that this project has been a way of, for the first time, really pushing away from that. Because, I don't know, I think that most other people don't have quite such an intermeshed familial relationship. There's something about the fact that there was just six of us in this entire hemisphere, and then my grandma died, and there was just five of us, and it was very much my parents, as immigrant parents, were like, the family is the absolute most important thing. You cannot drift away from us. You cannot form your own identity apart from us. This is, you are part of this unit, and you will perform as part of this unit. And so it was always really difficult for me to figure out what it was that I wanted out of life, because the pattern that was presented for me was, you will be part of this family and that's like the extent that's the extent that's the extent of preparation everybody's an engineer you're probably going to be an engineer but I don't have the I don't really have the mindset for coding I'm kind of curious about it in the sense of if I had somebody who could code stuff for me there's lots of questions that I would want to ask the universe but I don't want to spend the time doing it myself like I'm much more interested in people and so this has been the process of kind of slipping out from under that stone so to speak and coming into the light a little bit yeah, you guys had a crazy circuitous route to get here too, right? There's almost seems to be an evolutionary adaptation to your family's obsession with engineering because there's this survival element, right? You escaped this war-torn country, ended up in Israel, which didn't feel quite right either, had to go through Canada in order to get into the West, and then really fight their way down into California. And it's like been this slog and so i feel like this single-minded obsession with survival in the face of all of that chaos drove the culture of your family a bit well there was also this other thing which was which was travel it was a huge component of what the family values were to the degree that when i graduated high school i was so sick of school i was never very good at school I don't know why. I just didn't like it. I hated rules. I hated sitting around inside all the time. But you're very good at it. I remember in grad school, you were, you were very good at explaining things to me that people were being confusing about. I'm thinking Chaffee's genetics class, things like that, where I'm just, I can't bring myself to care about 1970s genetics, and it makes it very difficult for me to grasp what I need in order to pass this exam, whereas you're, you were very good at breaking those things down for me somehow. Was, Despite the fact that you were fucking off like crazy in class and <laughs> <laughs> getting us in trouble. I mean, this lady, this one professor was giving a lecture about, what was it? Some, some sex-related gene. Uh, it was worm vulvas. Worm vulvas. And we were just freaking losing it in this classroom at Columbia. <gasps> well, she, was, she started off the conversation by telling us that we couldn't record her because her research... I was mean. I was mean. I shouldn't have been mean. At any rate, you, you, were, you were really good at it, despite the fact that you were a little bit of a... A dunce in the classroom. I got a C in genetics during undergrad because I went to only one class and missed the final. 
He allowed me to retake the final, blessedly. So I got the C. But it was like, I just, I don't... How did you miss the final? I slept through. It was like 8 o'clock in the morning. I literally have dreams to this day (laughs) that I'm about to sleep through a final exam. (laughs) I had them all through college, too. Never happened, though. Yeah, I just... The the structure of it never really worked for me, which is why you're an excellent partner for me, because you were the most structural person that I've ever met in my entire life. Like, I think you have more agency than my entire family combined. So so that's really weird between the two of us, by the way, if I can just armchair us for a second. <laughs> yeah, because please. you come from this really firm, survival-oriented engineering background family. I come from a family of artists, and yet... I turned out to be kind of the uptight, schedule-oriented, conscientious <laughs> one. What the hell is going on there? Are we reactionary? I think that my family is optimized for running. I think my family is optimized for reacting to changing environments. So if you look at my family's history for the last three generations, it's literally been running from the White Army, running from the Red Army, running from the Soviets, running from the whatever. Like, there's just always been this mode of we will go to new places, we will orient ourselves, and in this changing environment, we will fit and we will make it work. And so school is the exact opposite of that. School is this, like, very structured place. And to be fair, like, my sister and brother excelled Mm -hmm, in school. mm -hmm. And maybe because I was moved around a lot when I was a kid, right? So, Do you think that your your pattern, your, your history reflects that running still? I think so, because it's just the, the whole family deals well with crisis. It's like, you tell me that I'm good at dealing with problems. My sister is off the charts able to deal with problems. Mm, I feel like we, my family kind of breaks down in the face of crisis more. It's, it's more grinds to a halt. Like We don't have head-on conflicts with one another. Yeah, like our, our family was full-on conflict. One, I don't want to say 100%, 90% of the time, just deep conflict. And so you have to be able to deal in the face of these relationships that are never stable, that are always kind of floating and changing. And you have to be constantly kind of like watching the relationships and, and figuring out how to get them to land properly. And so that's the kind of mindset that I think prepares you for dealing with changing situations. I attribute it also to the past, right? So my parents moved a bunch of times. They moved their entire family with their kids a bunch of times. Their parents moved. Their parents' parents moved. And so everybody was always in motion. And so the arc that we're really good at dealing with is, okay, circumstances are changing. We will change with them. We will adapt to what needs to happen in order to keep everything working. And if I'm not in that kind of environment, I can't really flourish. So if somebody is sitting down with me and is trying to explain something to me and is like, hey, these are how these pieces fit together, I can stop them and get them to go over it enough times over and over again until I understand it and I can synthesize it. But if you put me in a class where I'm just one of a thousand students and I have to just perform, I, I just, I don't know, it doesn't, it doesn't capture me. And I could never convince myself to do anything that didn't capture me. I'm but just, you were kind of thrown into science. Because you do have this interest in science, which I feel like has really bloomed recently, despite the fact that you've always been interested in how things work. You're squarely in a scientific position at this point. 
but that seems like you arrived at it kind of circuitously. And so did I, but totally differently. That's interesting. Didn't, um, you say, didn't you say that somebody pressured you into biology in the first place? When you, you know, it's so funny in the United States when you go to college, you show up and you're having all these new experiences for the first time and then they're like, pick a major. <laughs> pick what you're going to study and dedicate your profession to for the rest of your life. Yeah, and it was, I actually really wanted to study chemical engineering because I did really well in organic chemistry. That was one of the first classes that I did really well in. And it just made sense. It was all shape-based and it was it was intuition-based in a way that no other class has ever been for me. And so I was one of the only A's that I ever got. And it was an easy A. Wait, hold on. Chemistry is intuition-based. Or The first semester of organic chemistry is really intuition-based because the, I mean, God, it's been more than 10 years, but basically the, the shape of the molecules is going to tell you the result of their interaction. It's like really architectural. Yes. And so you can look rough, if you roughly know the principles of, okay, so these unmatched electrons here, these unmatched electrons there, these are the electronegativity of these things. And you can, and you can elaborate that off the periodic table. If you have some guidelines, you can basically re-derive stuff from first principles. And so I did really well with that because it's like you have a couple of guidelines and off those guidelines, you can re-derive the things that you need. You don't need to memorize anything. You don't need to have this recall that I've never had. But why not go into political science or something if you... Oh, they wouldn't pay for that. I see. So that you were flung into science. Your parents were like, you're going to do something STEM-oriented because that's how we make money in this family. That's a viable career. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And you were you were kind of pushed into medicine, though, right? Well, yeah, my <clears throat> didn't work out. But my family, being artists, were not keen on me becoming an artist, which is all that I wanted to do in the whole world, essentially, since I was born. But there were a small contingency. There was a small contingency of my family that were physicians, and that seemed to my family like that contingency was doing better than everybody else. <laughs> oh, but man. yeah, I, I mean, I, I also arrove at it a little bit through the careerist thing too. I was always interested in how the world worked, but like I said, I was really disappointed in what I read from the popular scientific narratives. And so I didn't major in physics as an undergraduate. I split my majors between a philosophy interdisciplinary major and a neuroscience major because I figured the mind and the world's that seems practical somehow and really interesting. But but you weren't family, in love with My family it. wanted me to, yeah, they, they very much dissuaded me from going off and trying to make a living playing music because it was so, it was so, such an unpromising prospect. And I discovered that my own way too. I, I did play music and devote my life to it through most of my 20s. And I lived pretty hard. It was very difficult. The people that I was living with, the people I was spending all my time with were also living really hard. And I mean, poor and running on very little fuel. And, you know, it was amazing traveling all the time, playing shows every night was incredible. But I slowly realized that I needed something to supplement that so that I didn't have to suffer that lifestyle as much. And that's how I started working in labs and eventually ended up doing my PhD. Because lab work is kind of cool when you're starting out at the tech level. It's very low responsibility. 
you're doing somebody else's experiments, but you can stick your head in and kind of throw little ideas at people. Don't have to worry about the grant writing. There's no incentive. You get the biggest salary you've ever seen in your life if you're like me, who was working at Starbucks before that. So all of a sudden, you're in this intellectual sphere, but you don't have the weight of it yet. And you can start playing with ideas and seeing how ideas can change the landscape. And I think that that's how I started to really spend a lot more time around scientific ideas and realized that you could change them. You could actually contribute to discussions in the tiniest little ways. And so it's been a long meandering road back to physics for me, which was what I was really in love with in the first place. Because you studied cancer, basically. I did, yeah. Did you do... Oh my God. It was the all ro- cancer the road, all the time? Yeah. Oh, it was horrible. The only lab job I could get, I was... A, the first lab I worked in was in New Haven. And the only job that I got offered, I was working at TGI Fridays too, which was freaking the worst time of my entire life. <laughs> you as a waiter, I would kill oh to see God. that. Oh my God. I failed my waiter's <laughs> test. This this really mean head waiter who was like translucent skin, like just the epitome of an evil looking overlord. And for the final test before they let you become a waiter, you have to serve this guy. And he was being such a dick to me that I just couldn't keep the smile on my face. You know, I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. And that was it pretty much. They offered me a busing job, but it was just, I couldn't do it. So anyways, I got this terrible, another terrible job, but wasn't as terrible, which was basically shooting rats with some sort of cancer, uh, anti-cancer poison. Anti-cancer? Yeah. I mean, we were, we were working on... You first gave them cancer and then you, you yeah. Yeah. So that was, and which was cool because... It allowed me to get my foot in the door for another cancer lab where I didn't have to do as much. You know, I was always trying to worm my way towards where I'm at today, which is really interesting. I was always like a little bit closer. It was like the next cancer lab, I was doing more of the imaging stuff, right? I was working Mm -hmm. with fluorescent molecules. And then after that, I was working with more advanced microscopes at the next lab in San Francisco. And then after that, I wormed my way into biophysics, right? So I'm doing the mechanics of processes inside of biological systems and then from that the mechanics i'm worming my way now into uh my present position where i'm an astronomy professor it's just been this slow inching towards doing those things because i got a late start i didn't do a physics undergraduate i didn't have that background that credentialism that i needed to move into it immediately Mm. and it turns out that uh, cancer biology is one of the most well-funded most munificent professions right if you want to be a scientist if you want to get involved in science you can probably right now go out onto the interwebs and get yourself a technician job in a cancer lab somewhere it's a great place to start if but probably not a great place to stay (laughs) why do you think it's not a great place to stay well it might be if that's if you're if you find yourself as fascinated with cancer as i am with the atom it's probably a great place for you and I was very, very committed to understanding it at first. And we'd made a lot of gains in my second lab, which was a leukemia lab. Leukemia is a pretty cool cancer. Ugh, that's a weird thing to say. Leukemia is a, a, actually a very uh, best case cancer often because it's in the blood. So it's circulating, which means the medicines can reach the cells very easily. Solid tumors, which I worked on later, like brain tumors, are very hard to access. And so the progress in those kind of tumors is often really, really bad. Like when I was working in glioblastomas, the progress, there was this little paragraph you amend at the beginning of each paper and it was talking about 
the advances in in the therapies and so forth, and they hadn't advanced one iota for survival in the last 20 years when I was writing these papers. Leukemia, on the other hand, we're making gains all the time. It was a very treatable cancer. It felt like, okay, we're getting stuff done. I was pretty into it. And I actually thought about going to med school at that time. That's when I was on the fence about all that. Decided to go and move to Mexico City and be a musician instead. But um, the brain tumors were really depressing. So I don't know. It, uh, it didn't work for me. I, I think it's just a really, all the medical professionals that I know, family members, people that have been around, friends who are doctors, they are really tired and stressed out and they all seem to display a sense of guilt about letting their patients down because they don't have the time and energy for them that they deserve. They feel really strapped by the industrial system that they're under the thumb of at this point. Like my uncle, he's a surgeon. He had his own practice for a long time, but his practice got eaten by a hospital system eventually. And he's on the team with all these other doctors. And it's just this very dehumanizing, depersonalizing. Uh, it's this oppressive force, right? Which is a weird thing to say, but it gets in the way. Only for you. This, yeah. <laughs> Literally everyone else in the world is like, yeah, I get that. I mean, it just didn't, it didn't work out for me. So. I was very close to sign on the dotted line to committing my life away to to that profession, and I just it didn't feel right. I didn't see any physicians out there who had well balanced lives, who were playing music on the side, you know, who were having good relationships outside of work, right? Who were studying things in nature that were interesting. It was like my uncle's like I do the same gallbladder surgery ten times a day for the last forty years at this point, right? Now that he's been absorbed into this greater system because they specialize and they do this one thing that the hospital system needs them to do. And so, anyways, I, I hope I, I don't offend him by saying that, but it it doesn't, it didn't speak to me at the time. So I feel like I dodged a bullet. That act of looking out onto the world and seeing how people are living and figuring that you want to be like them, I think is a huge part of why I had such a long road towards finding a version of science that I actually feel like I can inhabit. Because, you know, when I was a kid, it was no question that I was going to have to go do something technical in school. Like there was, I didn't want to go to college, right? I would always tell my parents, I'm like, I'm just going to go travel the world and, you know, make money as I travel and that'll just be what I do. And at this point, I think that it's probably good that they forced me to go to college, even though I wasn't really ready or didn't really know what I wanted to be. But it was, okay, give me the technical foundations. But the problem was is that the, the realm of people that I could look at to give me a sense of what life could be like was so narrow and unappealing. Where I would look at people and I'd be like, I don't want to live like you in the suburbs just buying stuff and, I don't know, going on cruises or something? Like, just living to make your money and then you get a couple of weeks of vacation a year, if that, and then you spend it at these really silly places, um, really silly things. And so I was just like, there is no motivation for me to excel in this structure because it does not seem possible inside of the structure to get anything that I want. That's how I felt too. And then I tried living outside of the structure in my 20s and it was so goddamn miserable. Dude, I remember when I was in Guatemala 
it was what god it's like three years ago at this point i uh after i got done on the green building project i went to oaxaca for a week and i was there at this hostel and i met this guy who was on a motorcycle tour by himself through south america he was the most haunted person that I have ever met in my entire life. That's what I'm saying. That's what I discovered was lots of haunted people out on the road who had turned away from the traditional cubicle work, but we were all such lost boys at the same time. And we literally refer to ourselves that way. And that's what it felt like. Because we were, in one sense, completely free of all of that bullshit. You're, 100%. But you were Peter Pan by the time I met you. So you figured out how to get out. I mean, we've yeah, we've some of us found our way out. A lot of people didn't. Right. There's a lot of casualties of that time period. There's people dead from that scene. There's people who are still stuck in the mud. Right. So it's not that, you know, mom and dad, I love you. Thank you. You're right. Nobody on earth would ever want to push someone else into being an artist, except for what you just said, which is that if you can find a way to integrate it and do some sort of service that actually is valuable to people through your artwork, then it's the best fucking job in the world because you literally get to reimagine the universe on a day-to-day basis and you you get to live inside of that space of imagination, inside of that Peter Pan space that is outside of time and space where you feel completely young, you feel like you're playing all the time when you're working and it's completely ideal, but your chances of pulling it off are a million to one. One to a million? (laughs) I mean, you just have to accept that life is going to be really thin for a long time. And that's something that I've always kind of realized is the case because my answer to, hey, I don't want that office job, right? Because I worked in I worked in a bunch of laboratories. I worked in reproductive medicine. I worked in aging. I worked in tuberculosis. I did, you know, my PhD was in bacterial communities. And I just at every step was like... This is not asking the deeper questions that we should be asking. Like in the aging laboratory, it was like, well, okay, we're, we're, we're pushing full force to figure out aging, to cure it. What are we going to do when we stop aging? What is the world going to look like? What are the philosophical things that we need to deal with on a social, cultural level in order for us to be prepared to encounter this kind of technology? Nobody cared. Mm. not a conversation that anybody was interested in having and so i wasn't able to get really into the work because i'm like you guys don't seem to have a philosophical vessel for the work Mm. you don't have a conception of the world that you're building that's an awesome world to build you're just solving a puzzle but there's no point to solving the puzzle because you 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 know you're gonna unleash unbelievable chaos onto the world when you do solve it from you know, the class distribution of it to the problem of no longer losing people to death and not wanting to deal with that as part and parcel of the technology that you developed, to me, always seemed unfathomable. Yeah, and what is art if not imagining solution sets? Like, what is a science fiction movie except either imagining what could go wrong or imagining what could be better? And I would say all of the art that we're interested in does that to some extent even if it's from an aesthetic standpoint like music like pure music it can still imagine a state of mind right that you would like to orient yourself towards perhaps or orient yourself away from if it's really depressing music (laughs) yeah and i think that 
the I, the the education that I've gotten in science has been really mechanistic and so valuable in that sense. Like I I, I understand the rough modes in which biology works. Doing that immunology class with you last year solidified the last part of it that I hadn't figured out yet, which was the immune system. You had a really, really good way of explaining it, maybe because you worked with it for so long, that it was just everything clicked into place and I suddenly could understand it in a way that I didn't really when I was an undergrad. But... I had this... Uh, can I just comment that I was fortunate enough to have studied neuroscience as an undergrad and... By getting myself prepared, because I was thinking maybe I'll go and become a physician at some point, I was trying to understand the immune system too and how disease works, essentially. And I was really struck when I was an undergraduate by the fact that the future of medicine was in the communication between the neurons and the immune cells, which seemed to be very similar kinds of cells to me anyways. But nobody was working on that back then. Interesting. And I was just like, this is where it's at. like the And that's, of course, what we're learning through all sorts of different updated ideas, right? Whether it's Wim Hof or, you know, um, lifestyle depression re related to immune dysfunction, things like that. I think that it's still pretty much a field that is wide open, though. I don't know that there's a ton of people that are really directly looking at the interconnections, but I do think it's, that they're It's there. in the future, yeah. So wait, so what happened with immunology? No, it was just that I'm grateful for having gotten the technical background and know-how that I needed where I feel like I can explain a biological system reasonably well. Certainly not as good as somebody who spent the last 40 years studying, you know, liver cancer or something can deal with the liver, but I have the big picture. And then I can take that and I can couple it to the thing that I'm really concerned about, which is not really a, a discipline, but it's how do you live well and how do you structure culture in such a way that people feed off of it and flourish rather than feed off of it and suffer. And the best way to figure that out is probably by looking at how nature solves this problem on her own. It's, yeah, that's hard to argue with, right? And so the that's probably why I was interested in biology in general, because I had this kind of holistic sense of, okay, this is this is the arc of the world and we can learn something from nature that we can't learn from ourselves. And yet I do have a fundamental belief that it's possible for people to live well. Maybe not inside the frames in which they have compromised themselves. Do you know what I mean by that? There's continually restructuring of civilization as we look back through history. There's all of these level ups and dark ages. There's peaks and valleys where people figure things out. They figure out better ways of living. Fundamentally, I guess I believe in progress in the long run, which I know there's an argument against progress, but I am not really seduced by it at all because I'm quite happy that I don't live in a cave and I have plumbing and I have all of the amazing technology, including the ability to talk with you guys, audience people. So there's always this up and down. Yeah, and I think that what I what I really want out of the Demystify Sci project is the ability to know other ways of thinking, where there is a deep interplay between 
our scientific understanding of the world and the way that we then go out and live. Like I've run into this the last few days because I've been posting about, you know, the hard problem of consciousness. And I was asking for people to please explain to me what the hard problem is. And I realized that it's just fundamentally this almost, I don't want to say nihilistic, but immaterial interaction with the world where it people believe that what we encounter isn't real right it's this illusion of of that we're all mass hallucinating together and you look at the literature and they're like man isn't it weird that we all happen to hallucinate the same reality even though the reality isn't there and how do you explain that and the idea that no no, no the reality is there and we are we are feeding off of it and in resonance with it solves the question but that's not present in the way that people think about the hard problem of consciousness because we've gotten to this weird point in our culture where there isn't a final answer there isn't a base reality it's we might be in a simulation it might be a hologram it might be you know a, a, a math problem that we're living inside of that's sufficiently complex and so that seems Do you think that that's just a reaction to the past where one reality was enforced and stipulated and detailed in the sense of almost in the sense of statewide religion this idea that this is the one way to think about things and that the modern times are kind of an explosive repulsion to that anything goes kind of vibe that's so popular even in science Maybe, but my my immediate instinct is that it's not a particularly free, freeing ideology, right? Because the constraint then becomes that it is all about the fact that nothing is real, right? Because to say that, hey, this is real, this is the thing that we hold on to, and this is the thing that we must deal with in order to be able to actually move forward, that then becomes what is unpopular. And so it's not really a freedom in the sense that anything goes. It's that you have to abandon the old mode of thinking, the old world's top-down reality is, and it's objective, and the scientist is this eyeball that looks at the world. We reject that. And in reality, what we accept is that nothing can be known, nothing is real, the scientist is an illusion, and so is your imagination of the scientist. And it's like... It's a pendulum. And so I want this project to be the process. It is, yeah, that's what I was trying to get at earlier. There's there's an ups and downs, right? Progress is not this one-way arrow thing. Yeah. And we have to fight for it, honestly, because it won't just happen by itself. And I guess that that's, that's maybe the fundamentally arrogant belief that I have, that I'm entitled to fight for a better world. And I have to always deal with this question of, well, why do you think that you know what a good world looks mm. like? Yeah, we get that a lot. How dare you? How dare you? And I don't know. I, I just, I really, I think that I, I think that anybody who lives... Well, anybody who spends their life talking to people and understanding what they want... And understanding how they think. And tr that's, if that's what you're dedicated to. Now, you say at the beginning of this conversation that you fundamentally just love talking to people. But 
what are, you're learning about people in general. You're yeah. learning about their needs and their desires and what they want, and you're sensing an incongruity between our systems of governance, our systems of economy and production, and God, I'm starting to sound very Marxist, aren't I? Jeez. Well, there's no but other you, way you to realize, think about you it. You realize it's an imperfect system that needs improvement, and it, there's ideological flaws in it. There's literally structural features which are problematic and have been in the past rewritten, right? That's what legislation, law, the judicial system has accomplished is interpreting those structural elements and being like, wait a second, that's no good. And sometimes they're huge leaps, like the the moving past monarchy into democracy or into parliamentarian representational democracy, anything. These are huge leaps. Sometimes it's just revising a law at the Supreme Court or introducing pivotal legislation like the Civil Rights Act, for instance, where all of a sudden, oh, wow, everybody gets human rights, not just the chosen few. That's revolutionary. But the law is not enough, right? Because you pass the Civil Rights Act and you still need generations to actually equilibrate the cultural context in order to change these ancient prejudices. 100%. And so the the work here, I feel like, is I've tapped out of the careerist ladder for better or for worse. Sometimes I have this moment of panic where I'm like, what am I doing? I should get a postdoc. I should get a postdoc. Yeah, Shiloh's always like, you don't want a postdoc. I'm like, what? well, maybe. And there's a part of me that I, I think that it would be really interesting. But then we meet somebody like Ogiogas and he's like, I don't do that. I work on stuff, but I can't work inside that system because the system doesn't work for me. And so by buying myself out of the system by saying, okay, I'm going to bring the needs that I have down to the absolute bare minimum. I'm really going to cut the fat out and I'm going to spend all of my time occupied with what could a better world look like. What I fundamentally believe that if we fill the world with good ideas and good behavior, kindness and, and contemplation and possibility, that what will rise out of that will be better than what we have right now, which is this fear-based, force-based, power-based interaction between people. And I don't think that you can erase that. I don't think that you can get rid of people wanting power over others, authoritarianism, all these nasty things. I have no illusions about that. But at the very least, I think that you and I can make a little pocket of the world where people can come and they can sink into a comfortable chair and they can let their hair down and they can encounter ideas and encounter people that are curious and feel like the world is not burning down around them. And, and feel other people around them who are interested in the same things. Yeah. And it's like, I think this gets back to what you were saying earlier with this feedback we get sometimes, especially when it comes to presenting our own scientific ideas about something like, who the hell do you think you are? Well, I don't really care if you like my scientific idea or not, but the fact that we're even talking about it is really, really good for the world, I think. Because maybe it's not the best idea of the atom or whatever, but at least we're dealing with the issue all of a sudden. And if there's one service that we, that I hope we can provide in this little project we have here, it's to open up discussions about what could be. What are the things that we should be talking about? Because the first step, even to something like the Civil Rights Act, was people talking about it. People getting fired up about what the issue was and, and brainstorming what the solution set could be. So what do you think is the role of science in that? 
Science is almost a more pure pursuit, which is about understanding nature. It gets really political because everybody wants to have a monopoly on how others view nature. Mm. But I personally have little interest in that, and I'm really annoyed by it whenever it sticks its fangs into my side. And I want to explore something, but some bigger superstructure is getting in my way. You know, we obviously saw this play out during the COVID thing, which was extremely painful to me from day one because I saw all of the politicization of it before it happened. I just felt the wave of it coming from the media, right? And it wasn't about the science. And we learned that by teaching the immunology of COVID. We learned that the science papers had nothing to do with the public health messaging, the media messaging. It was just a, a big conflagration. conflagration. It was a, a big fireworks display. So I'm pretty much turned off by all that stuff. It really grosses me out. And I love to do science in the woods. <laughs> I love to think about nature in a place where I don't have to concern myself with how it's impacting the world. Do you feel like you have an obligation to the world? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, the, the weird thing about understanding nature or making art, for that matter, is that you do it in isolation, away from the rest of the universe. You take all of your experience, you go off somewhere into the woods or into a studio somewhere, and you make something, right? You forge it into some understanding, in the case of science, which you might call a theory, and in the case of, say, art, maybe you forge it into a painting or you make a musical recording or write a song. But then you bring that back to people at the end of the day, and I think that's my hope Actually, it's been my overwhelming joy to receive the support of people because they do find that valuable. So we bring all this. We, we go and talk to all of these scientists, these philosophers, these thinkers, these uh, people at the edge of what's known, and we're bringing that all here. We're bringing it, and we're, we're giving it on. We're handing it over to the rest of the world. And the same thing is true in art bring this piece of music, you go to the theater and you give it to the people. And that's kind of what it's all about for me. That's, that's, that's the best reward in the world is handing something off to the people, whether it's uploading one of these podcasts, releasing a song or playing a show. There's no better cosmic feeling in the world for me than del that delivery. May you. What was the question? What 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 gets you jacked up about doing this? I mean, why are you? Uh, what's your motivation? <laughs> Status. <laughs> Power. Dollar bills. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're floating in them. Um, I just want things to make sense. I I just I've I, right I. I want things to make sense and then I want to be able to make them better. I, I just, I really, really believe in making places better than they were when you arrived. And that's not a mentality that I always had. And so it's been a long road to get to the place where I look at the world as being something that I owe something to. 
And so the art of, of this podcast is my attempt to make the world better because I'm like, look, I can either spend my time kicking the machine and being like, this doesn't work and I don't think that it's right and we're not focused on the right questions or I can go and I can actually spend time focusing on the questions that I believe are the right questions to be focused on. And luckily I have you with me and I think that together we have this ability to to come at things from totally different directions. Like we have we have an overarching goal of being able to bring something to people and by virtue of being able to work together on it with our different approaches to it, we're able to make something that's kind of weird and unique. Yeah, I mean, I really just wanted to introduce us to folks because we have shied away from that so we started this project as puppets because we literally wanted to keep our persons out of it as much as possible that didn't work because it's very hard to emotionally communicate with people with puppets it turns out so here we are human beings sitting in front of a camera which is something we never really meant to do and i think it's fair people want to know who we are so i hope that today we've exposed more than necessary about who we are and honestly of course you can figure out who we are from our conversations anyways but anyways i hope this wasn't just cringe self-indulgent junk to you guys and that uh you can meet us and of course we want to get to know you so made a lot of friends already through this at patreon and at discord and it's been really cool but now that we've introduced ourselves formally, I guess maybe we don't have to do this anymore. <laughs> that we don't have to do this anymore, but also maybe introduce yourselves. Like something that I'm always fascinated about is who's listening to the podcast and we get your usernames or whatever. And obviously there's the not everybody wants to be known on the internet, but if you if you want to tell us about yourself in the comments, I think that'd be really cool so we can get to know more about yeah, yeah, yeah. why people are here and what you're interested in and what you want to see of the world. Yeah. And what you want to see of us too, right? Because we have this vision of conversations for right now, and then we want to be able to do events. We want to be able to fund people who are doing interesting research. Oh, let's tell them about the event. If oh, you're still yeah. listening, we are organizing our first Demystify Psy event to coincide with the eclipse next year in the United States on or around April 8th. There's a line. You can pull it up. Just Google the eclipse in 2024. It goes from like Mazatlan, Mexico to northern Maine. So it's like this diagonal pull right across the country. And we don't have a fast enough car to chase the sun across the country, but we will be in some spot along the way, and we're still sorting that out. And we'd love to see you guys come out. We're hopefully going to get some keynote speakers, some of your favorite people to show up, at least at least a few and we'll play some music we'll eat some food we'll gather we'll mingle and become better friends all right well next week we'll be back to talking to other people but i hope you guys enjoyed this it's been kind of fun for me yeah agreed. see you next week